Leverage is only leverage when used responsibly. Otherwise, it simply becomes a liability. So go out there, add the seller financing tool to your toolbox and go make some magic happen. In the next chapter, we'll talk about the longest and perhaps most complicated method in this book, wholesaling. Although wholesaling is a completely different animal from the other methods discussed so far, I believe learning to be an expert wholesaler will help you in every aspect of your real estate investing efforts. So whether or not you ever plan to wholesale a deal, pay close attention to the next chapter. Wholesaling could be a valuable tool in your investing toolbox. Chapter 9, Real Estate Wholesaling. I was reluctant to write this chapter, not because I don't like wholesaling, I do, but because I see so many people fail at it. Day after day, people come to us at Bigger Pockets and say, I want to be a wholesaler. But two weeks later, they're gone, and I never hear from them again. Why? Well, honestly, I don't really know, but I got some guesses. Experts make it sound really easy when it's really not. People think it takes no money. Well, maybe. It's more complicated than they thought. It takes more time than they thought. They get bored. For whatever reason, people interested in wholesaling tend to suddenly disappear from the real estate scene. However, the simple fact is that wholesaling is one of the most popular methods for newbies who want to get involved with real estate investing, and nothing I say or do will change that. What I can do is make succeeding easier for those interested in this option by providing the best resource possible for being a real estate wholesaler. I believe that if more people realize what the whole picture looks like, they will stick with it and find success. If you are interested in making money by wholesaling real estate, I encourage you to take your time and really dig into this chapter. Take notes, highlight sections, teach others what you're learning, and perhaps most importantly, head over to the Bigger Pockets Wholesaling Forum and start interacting with successful wholesalers. I hope that this chapter will provide you with an exhaustive overview of wholesaling and that you'll be able to incorporate it into your strategy to invest in real estate with little to no money down. Important. This chapter is about far more than just wholesaling. This chapter is first and foremost about marketing and finding great deals. So even if you never plan to wholesale a deal, I encourage you to read through it anyway. I believe wholesaling can be a valuable tool in any investor's toolbox. So learning the basics will serve you well in your quest to become a creative real estate investor. With that said, let's get going. We'll start at the beginning because as Julie Andrews tells me, it's a very good place to start. What is real estate wholesaling? A few years ago, I wanted to start a jeans company. True story. My plan was simple. Create an online website that sold jeans for tall and thin men like me because I can't find jeans that fit. And I know a lot of other tall, thin men who have the same problem. In my efforts to start this venture, I realized that I would be the retailer, the front end, from whom customers would purchase the jeans. Hundreds of factory workers, the manufacturer, would stitch together the denim to make the jeans. However, I didn't know a whole lot about jeans. I needed help. Enter the wholesaler. A wholesaler is the middleman who connects the retailer to the product source, collecting a fee for doing so. Wholesalers typically buy in bulk for cheap and sell for a higher price to a retailer. This business process is the same in the clothing industry, the meat industry, the construction industry, and almost every other industry that sells to the general public. For example, Home Depot doesn't simply call up a factory in Bangladesh and order more toilets. You need a middleman, and that wholesaler is the middleman. A real estate wholesaler finds deals and connects a retail buyer, typically an investor, with those deals, charging a fee for doing so. 
A wholesaler is trained to market for those good deals, negotiate the best discount, put together a solid contract, and then sell at a markup to someone else who is not trained or prepared to do all the work. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me take a step back and walk you through how a wholesale deal typically plays out from start to finish, because the process can be a little confusing for someone not familiar with it. I find it helpful to see the terrain at an altitude of 20,000 feet before blazing through the jungle. So consider this your flyover. Now keep in mind, there are many different techniques for wholesaling a property, and we will cover those in this chapter, but this example is just one of the more popular options. Step one, find a great deal from a motivated seller. Step two, negotiate a great price that makes financial sense to both parties. Step three, sign a purchase and sale agreement with the seller. Step four, find a cash buyer, like a house flipper or maybe a landlord. Step five, legally connect the cash buyer to the motivated seller. Step six, collect the difference in price between what the seller's contract is for and what the cash buyer will pay. Step seven, rinse and repeat with more and more deals. Example of a wholesale deal. Let me walk you through an example of a fairly typical wholesale deal. I'll use the same example throughout the chapter, so don't be concerned if you don't understand every aspect right away. This is the complete puzzle, but after I presented the whole thing, I'll dive into the details of each piece. Beth is a new wholesaler looking for her first deal and using a variety of marketing techniques. She gets a phone call about a three-bedroom, two-bath, 1,400-square-foot home at 123 Main Street in a fairly desirable neighborhood. The owner... Clarence has been trying to sell it on his own with no luck. Beth talks with Clarence and discovers that he is making two house payments and he can't afford both, so he's getting very motivated to sell. However, the house is painted in ugly purple, has outdated carpet, and smells like the four German shepherds that have lived there for the past decade. No one is interested in the house in its current condition. Clarence doesn't have the funds necessary to get the home into a marketable condition. Besides, he's just tired of dealing with it and he wants out. Clarence is stuck. Beth, the investor, knows the neighborhood well and has done her homework. There have been a dozen sales of similar homes, all fixed up, in the neighborhood in the previous six months, ranging from $135,000 on the low end to $175,000 on the high end. Being conservative, Beth estimates that the home's value, if the place is fixed up, is going to be around $143,000, but she also knows it needs about $20,000 worth of repairs. Clarence, the owner, has been asking $120,000 for the property, but because of the condition, no one will even bother to look at it. Beth builds a good rapport with Clarence, does the math, and offers him $74,500 for the property. She lets Clarence know that either she or a business associate of hers will buy the home within six weeks and Clarence will no longer have the double payment. After some minor negotiation, Clarence accepts the offer and the two of them sign a contract for Beth or her business associate to purchase the property. Beth thanks Clarence and immediately calls Jackson, a local house flipper she met via the Bigger Pockets forums. She tells Jackson about the deal and gives him the address. He and Beth go look at the house together and Jackson agrees to pay $84,500 for the home. Beth then assigns the contract to Jackson for a $10,000 fee to be paid at closing. 
collects a $2,000 non-refundable deposit up front from Jackson. Several weeks later, Jackson and Clarence sign all the paperwork at their local title company. Clarence receives the $74,500 that Beth offered him. Jackson pays $84,500 for the property, which he intends to rehab and resell for a profit. And Beth? She receives her $10,000 wholesale fee, the difference between $74,500 and $84,500. And she moves on to the next deal after enjoying a night at the local steakhouse to celebrate. This deal is an idealized wholesale deal, and it's obviously been simplified. However, while wholesaling is not as easy as the gurus might make it out to be, it's not an impossible task either. Wholesaling, at its core, is about solving problems. In the example, the owner, Clarence, had a problem, and Beth made a fee by solving his problem, just as a real estate agent would solve a retail seller's problem. Personally, I used to dislike wholesaling because I thought, well, isn't it wrong to try to steal properties from people? Yes, it is wrong to steal. Don't do that. However, ethical wholesaling is not about stealing anything. Again, it's about solving problems and helping people. If someone doesn't want to sell, you're not going to make them do so. You are simply providing a way to solve their problem. If they consider your proposed solution the best option, of course. Remember to be smart and ethical. Does wholesaling require money? Yes and no. I decided to include this chapter on wholesaling in this book because I believe wholesaling can be a legitimate way to get started investing in real estate with really no money, and there are tactics for doing so, as we'll discuss. Furthermore, wholesaling can be an exceptional way of making enough cash to start buying your first rentals or your flips or your commercial properties. So I do believe it fits nicely in a book about creative real estate investing. Here's the truth about the money needed to wholesale real estate. It is possible to wholesale a deal or two without any money, but truly building a marketing system that consistently provides leads will probably require some cash. But that's okay because you can start small and scale up using your profits to reinvest into more and more marketing. So yes, you can wholesale with little to no money. However, if you have no money and want to start wholesaling, it's going to take some additional hustle. Again, this is all about trading creativity for cash. You may need to start by driving for dollars and handwriting a lot of letters. We'll talk about these tactics soon. You may need to work directly for a single cash buyer and accept very low margins on your first few deals. You may need to get out there and start knocking on doors. Hustle is the name of the no money down game. However, once you land your first deal, I encourage you to use that money to start testing out some of the paid ways of attracting leads, such as direct mail marketing. That said, wholesaling is probably never going to be 100% free. Even if you stick with free methods of finding deals like driving for dollars or empowering others to find deals for you or even using an agent to make offers on like HUD properties, you're still likely going to incur some costs like gas, business cards, stamps, earnest money. However, these costs are nothing compared with what you could earn wholesaling and nothing you can't save up by putting in a few extra shifts at work or selling some stuff from your garage. Let's start with perhaps the most important aspect of the entire wholesaling process, finding a great deal. If you don't have a great deal, the best looking business cards are just garbage. If you don't have a great deal, a list of 100 cash buyers is just a list of names. 
If you don't have a great deal, your ambitions as a wholesaler are just dreams. A great deal is the foundation. Let's start building it now. Marketing for great deals. The secret to making money from wholesaling is being able to consistently find great deals. This also happens to be the most difficult part of the wholesaling experience. The fact is, great deals are hard to find. It takes work. It takes effort. It might even take a bit of cash. However, finding great deals is possible, and you are about to learn how it's done. The following are nine of the most common strategies for finding real estate deals. Keep in mind, you don't need to do all nine or even the majority of them. Start with just one, whatever one your budget allows for. Then, when deals start coming in, you can reinvest your profits and go bigger. Number one, driving for dollars. Driving for dollars is the name investors give to the practice of simply driving around an area looking for potential good deals. The benefit of the strategy is that it costs very little to accomplish, and is a true example of using creativity to replace cash when investing in real estate. However, I don't mean just driving aimlessly down random streets hoping somebody comes out and asks you to buy their home. You will need to pick the right neighborhoods in which to wholesale, find properties that look prime for wholesaling, like long grass, boarded up windows, etc. Locate the property owner, probably using public records, and get in touch with that owner. To read a great two-part in-depth series on driving for dollars, don't miss Chris Feltes' blog posts, Driving for Dollars Bible, Finding Distressed Properties and Marketing, and Driving for Dollars Bible 2, Tracking Down Owners, and more tips. Over on the Bigger Pockets blog. Number two, direct mail. Direct mail is the practice of sending mail to a targeted list of people with the assumption that a very small percentage of them will respond to the campaign. Direct mail is not cheap, but most real estate investors who consistently use direct mail find it to be the most scalable form of marketing, paying back many times more than it costs. For example, you may spend $2,000 to print and mail 2,000 letters. You might receive 100 phone calls from motivated sellers and actually find three properties worth wholesaling for 5,000 bucks each. Therefore, that $2,000 could net you $15,000 in revenue. For a more in-depth look at this, the world of direct mail marketing, don't miss the post on the Bigger Pockets blog, The Ultimate Guide to Using Direct Mail Advertising to Grow Your Real Estate Business. Just Google it. Number three, your website through SEO. Whether it's figuring out how to keep their dogs from going potty indoors, learning how to solve a Rubik's Cube in 10 minutes or less, or trying to identify that what that terrible noise is coming from the car engine, people turn to the internet in hopes of an answer. As we've noted numerous times already, wholesaling is about solving problems, so it would make sense that people would search the internet for a cure to their home difficulties, and they do every day. Getting your website in front of these people can produce an incredible supply of motivated leads. However, getting the search engines to offer your website to searchers is an art form in itself. This practice is known as SEO, or Search Engine Optimization. Although the search engine algorithms change constantly, the key to success in SEO is to make your website easy to read and to fill it with amazing content centered on specific topics people are searching for. Remember, the search engine's job is to provide searchers with the best solutions to their problems, so make your website the best, most obvious solution to their problems and it'll start to appear at the top of the search results. Number four, online marketing. 
In addition to SEO, you can reach internet searchers by paying to be at the top of their search results page or on somebody's Facebook wall, by paying for ads, a practice known as pay-per-click advertising. For a few dollars per click, because you typically only pay when somebody clicks the ad, you can get targeted leads to your website. Number five, signs. Let's step away from the virtual world for a minute and talk about one of the most controversial methods of attracting leads, signs. The most common type of sign used by wholesalers is known as a bandit sign. Those are those ugly, often yellow, often handwritten, I wanna buy your house for cash signs that you sometimes see plastered all over. At Bigger Pockets, we recommend not using these. Although they may work, they are almost always illegal to actually put those up. Additionally, they make neighborhoods look terrible. There are other signs you can consider using though legally. For example, renting a billboard with a I wanna buy houses message can get the phone ringing. Similarly, placing a magnetic sign on your car could get your name and number out there. Number six, the MLS. The MLS is where the majority of homes in the United States are listed for sale. Now in reality, the MLS is not one thing, but rather dozens of small lists owned by real estate brokers that when combined, we refer to as the MLS, but that's getting a little too deep for this conversation. Chances are, if you're searching like Zillow.com or Trulia.com or Realtor.com, you're actually searching pretty much the MLS. When a home is listed on the MLS for sale, that generally means a real estate agent is behind the listing and will get paid a commission by the seller, which means it's usually commission-free for the buyer to purchase the real estate. This also means you can use a real estate agent on the deal and that person gets paid by the seller. So using an agent just makes sense. Now, I won't say that finding wholesale deals on the MLS is impossible, but because of the exposure homes on the MLS have, competition is much greater, especially in a hot competitive market like a lot of the US is experiencing today. However, hidden gems can be found on the MLS if you look carefully enough, act quickly, and negotiate intelligently. Number seven. Craigslist. Craigslist has truly taken the world by storm. This website, which unashamedly looks like the internet circa 1995, is currently the country's 10th largest website, with more than 60 million people using the site every month in the US alone. Craigslist is essentially the world's largest classifieds website, where people of all walks of life can post their needs, their wants, and what they have to offer. You can find buy, sell, trade, or rent anything ranging from cars to houses, chainsaws, and spouses. The best part is Craigslist is totally free, unless you're posting a job opening or rental in some cities, uh, which is where Craigslist actually makes its money. Every real estate investor should be using Craigslist on a daily basis because of the site's popularity, posting an I buy house ad is a no brainer. Additionally, looking there daily for owners who list their homes as for sale by owner is also a no brainer. And you can do it in just a few minutes or even automate it using a website such as ifttt.com. Number eight, for sale by owner. Many homeowners decide to sell their property without listing it on the MLS and simply stick a sign in the yard or they post an ad in the newspaper. These properties are known as FSBO or for sale by owner properties. Most FSBO, FSBO homes are priced too high or they have no equity but wholesaling is a numbers game. So the more houses you look at, the better chance you have of finding a great deal. And number nine, empowering others. 
The final strategy I wanted to share might be the most powerful, leveraging other people's talents, time, and skills to bring deals to you. After all, your circle of influence is relatively small, but the more people you work with, the larger your collective network is, and the more potential deals you'll be able to find. There are a variety of ways you can empower other people to find deals for you, including offering a finder's fee to others, talking with your local mail carrier, working with other wholesalers, and just letting everyone you meet know what you're looking for. I hope these nine strategies will give you a good place to start in looking for deals. However, keep in mind that this is only a sampling of what's possible. Get creative with your marketing. Talk with other real estate investors and discover what works for them. Continually test, continually tweak, and continually grow. Consistency is key when marketing for wholesale leads and imperative when trying to build a sizable real estate wholesaling business. Spend the vast majority of your time on marketing and you'll have more deals than you'll know what to do with. And that is a great problem to have. Is wholesaling a job or investing? Before we get too deep into the specifics of assembling a wholesale deal, I want to talk about the elephant in the room. Is wholesaling really investing? Does it belong in a book about creative real estate investing? Who cares? <laughs> wholesaling is not passive, but neither is flipping or landlording. Nearly every worthwhile aspect of real estate involves some level of work, and the systems you create are what define how much work that is. Some wholesalers work far fewer hours than most landlords because they've established the proper systems to handle the majority of their business. This is where I want you to be, and this is where you can be. I believe that at its core, wholesaling is really a job. If you stop working, it stops producing. However, it's a job that can help you raise cash for future investing while also giving you the skills you need to become a great real estate investor. By mastering the art of wholesaling, you master the art of marketing for deals, which most real estate investors never excel at. Perhaps the greatest benefit of wholesaling is that you are able to cherry pick the best deals, those that fit with your long-term plan, while wholesaling the rest. If you can create a marketing machine that consistently churns out great leads, you can wholesale 90% of the properties you find, keep 10% for flipping or for long-term buy and hold. Because you'll be able to get such deep discounts, this would only accelerate your wealth building activities and lead you to financial freedom that much more quickly. So who cares if it's a job or investing? If you love doing it, do it. If you don't, then don't. How much money can a wholesaler make? Ah, so we come to the real reason you're reading this chapter. Of course, no one is in the wholesaling game because it's just a fun hobby. Wholesalers work their tails off because they know good money can be made, but how much? Well, defining a typical wholesale fee is hard, but most wholesalers I know try to make a minimum of $5,000 per deal, and some make a lot more. In the end, it all comes down to how good of a deal you can get. The larger the spread between the price you pay for a property and the price you sell it for, the more money you make. The more deals you do, the more money you make. One of the biggest mistakes new wholesalers make is forgetting one simple fact. A wholesaler needs to sell at wholesale prices. Because the primary buyer for a wholesale deal is another real estate investor, a wholesaler must come to the table with a better deal than what the other investor could go get on their own. For example, if a typical three-bedroom, two-bath house in Cougartown sells for 150K and an investor wants to get such a house for 110,000, the wholesaler had better get it for even less than 110,000. If they can get it for 105,000 and then sell it for 110,000, then yeah, they can make a $5,000 fee. 
If they can get it for 90,000, they could sell it for 110,000. Now they can make a $20,000 fee. So your success as a wholesaler starts with finding a great deal. The old adage of you make your money when you buy rings especially true for the wholesaler. So how do you know what a great deal is? Well, for this, it all comes down to the math. Wholesaling math. You don't have to be a nerd to understand math, at least not wholesaling math. The process is not too difficult, and I believe anyone can get a firm grasp of it with just a little bit of practice, which is exactly what you'll be doing now. The next section will show you exactly how to determine the price you should offer a seller for a property and how much you can expect to make. For this, we'll return to the original story I used in the beginning of this chapter with Beth the wholesaler, Clarence the owner, and Jackson the cash buyer. The After Repair Value Let's start with the most important and fundamental number in real estate wholesaling, the ARV, or after repair value, which we first explain in chapter five. As the name would suggest, the ARV is the property's estimated monetary worth if it were in good condition and comparable to other finished homes that are on the market. In other words, it's the value of the house after any necessary repairs have been done. The ARV is the foundation on which most of our calculations are based. This is true because in wholesale math, we need to start at the end and work backwards, accounting for the different expenses that will come up along the way. When we're finished, we should have a specific price that we, the wholesaler, can offer. Although ARV may be easy to understand as a concept, actually determining it for a specific piece of real estate is much more difficult and nailing the ARV is the difference between success and failure in real estate wholesaling. So how does one figure out the ARV? At least for residential properties, like one unit, two unit, three unit, or four unit properties, value is determined by comparing the property to other similar properties that have recently sold. This is known as the comparable sales approach and is often referred to as comps. However, there are several ways that you can use comps to discover a property's ARV. First, let's look at how an appraiser would value a property. Appraisers typically look for three properties within close proximity that have a similar size, layout, bedroom, bath mix, age, and other similar attributes. The appraiser will then add or subtract values based on what the similar properties do or don't have compared with the property being appraised. For example, comp property number one has an extra bedroom that our subject property does not have. Therefore, we will subtract $15,000 in value from the final sale price of comp property one because the appraisers determined that an extra bedroom has historically been proven to add about $15,000 in that area. Also, maybe another comp property has an extra 100 square feet of space. So we're going to subtract $3,000 from the final value since the appraiser has determined that adding 100 square feet is worth about $3,000. But that same comp property has an old roof where our subject property will have a new roof. So we're going to add $5,000 to our value, knowing that a new roof on this home would add roughly $5,000. To go back to our example, in the end, an appraiser would likely come up with a relative value for the comp property. This adjusted price reflects its value if its features were the exact same as our subject property. The appraiser would then do this for all three comps and average the results to get a fairly close estimate of what the ARV would be for the subject property. In this case, in our example, 
we'll say the ARV average would ultimately be about $147,000. So what does this mean for the wholesaler? Now, I'm not suggesting you go out and become a real estate appraiser, and I'm also not suggesting that you need to go out and hire an appraiser for every potential wholesale deal. However, by understanding the methodology an appraiser uses to determine value, you can get a ballpark estimate in just minutes without doing as much work. In other words, if you were to do some research and discover the basic information for three comparable properties, you could calculate that the value would be less than that of the most expensive comp, but probably more than the cheapest. Let's say the most expensive comp that Beth looked at was 167000 and the cheapest was 138000 Therefore, estimating that ARV in the mid-140s would probably be close enough. Another common method for wholesalers who want to estimate a property's ARV is to look at square footage and determine what the average price per square foot is for the comparables and apply that average to the property they're analyzing. I recommend using the strategy only when all three of the comparable sales are very similar to the subject property because as we'll see in a moment, this practice can lead to some wild numbers. Using the example of the same three comps, let's try to determine the subject property's ARV using just the square footage method. First, we need to figure out what the price per square foot is for each comp. So let's say a comp number one was $156,000 and it was 1,500 square feet. That works out to $104 per square foot. Now another comp was listed for $138,000, also had 1,500 square feet. That works out to $92 per square foot. And a third comp was sold for $167,000 and it had 2,000 square feet. That actually works out to $83.50 per square foot. Now, we just need to average out these price per square foot numbers. To do that, simply add them together and divide by the number of comps, in this case, three. The final average price per square foot for the comps was $93.17. So now we're gonna multiply that number by the square footage of whatever property we're trying to appraise which in this case we'll say is 1,400 square feet, and we'll get an ARV of $130,438. Well, that's quite a bit different from the numbers we determined earlier, isn't it? I mean, earlier we talked about the price would be $147,333. Why did this value based on square footage come in $17,000 less? Because the comps were not similar enough. There were simply too many factors in those comps to use only square footage to determine value. For example, the formula didn't take into account that one of the homes had a new roof and the other had an extra bedroom. As I mentioned earlier, use the square footage approach only when the comps are very similar to the subject property. Especially when you are first starting out, you should use several different methods to determine a property's ARV. Then try to go with the most conservative one. Being too conservative and offering too little is better than over-offering and being unable to sell the property. Because the ARV is such an important number, really it's the most important number, it's vital that you get this part right. I highly recommend, at least when you're first beginning, that you build a relationship with one or more competent real estate agents so they can offer their opinion on the ARV. We'll talk about this a little bit more in just a moment. The more opinions you can get, the better equipped you'll be to estimate an accurate ARV in a property. And trust me, it gets easier the more you do it. Finding comps. Finally, you may be wondering how to find the sale price of these properties for comp data. 
Here are a few ways to do so. First, the MLS and an agent. The MLS is a real estate agent-owned collection of data concerning all of the listed, pending, and recently sold properties in a given area. We talked about this already. Although this information is typically not available publicly, most real estate agents can print you a list of comps in just seconds for free. Even better, when starting out, you can work with an agent to help you figure out the ARV of a potential deal, even though the agent won't make any money on the transaction. So how do you get a real estate agent to volunteer their time helping you? By building a strong reciprocal relationship with that agent. Network, ask for referrals, and interview agents to find the best one in your area, and then let them know who you are and what you do. Next, ask them if they would be willing to occasionally help you look at deals and determine an ARV in exchange for you referring all leads that you can't work to them. Then don't bother them very often, but maintain a professional working relationship based on mutually beneficial goals. After all, when you are operating as a wholesaler, only a small percentage of the deals that come across your desk from your marketing will be worthy of your consideration, so you can refer all other leads to that agent. This is truly a win-win relationship that can benefit both parties greatly. Number two, online real estate portals. Many of the online real estate portals, including Zillow.com, offer limited sold comps for some properties. Although this information is not as comprehensive as the MLS data, it may be more than enough for what you need. Additionally, you could use any of the free online real estate portals like Zillow, Trulia, Redfin, Realtor.com to look at the home sales currently for sale or that have already sold. Now, while you technically shouldn't use for sale prices in an appraisal, this can at least give you a ballpark of what homes are going for. You would then just deduct a little maybe to come up with an estimated ARV. And third, public records. Finally, whenever a property is bought or sold, the transaction is recorded in the public record for anyone to see. However, even though you can search your county's online public records to find a property's most recent sale price and sale date, you will probably not discover any information on the condition or specifics of the property. Still, you can use the public records in conjunction with online real estate portals like Zillow or Trulia or Realtor, which usually keep a record of old listings for a long time. Just Google the address of a property that has recently sold and you'll likely find the original listing complete with photos and other relevant information. Finally, let me end the ARV discussion with the word of encouragement. It gets easier. It really does. The more time you spend analyzing properties, the better and faster you'll become. This is why I recommend setting aside a few moments every day to practice. Before long, you'll have a really firm grasp on the property's value in your community and you won't need to wonder. You'll just know. This is also why it's so important to keep your farm area, the area you work in, as tight as possible when you're first starting out. It's very important. If you're trying to wholesale over an area of 10,000 square miles, you're going to run into a lot of problems. However, if you focus on several similar neighborhoods and property styles, you'll gain a much quicker grasp of the ARVs. Now, let's move on to discuss how you can use ARV to determine your maximum allowable offer, the most you should ever pay, and profit on a wholesale deal. We'll start with a rule of thumb, the 70% rule. The 70% rule. If you are a house flipper, you probably recognize the 70% rule and understand how it pertains to your trade. However, the 70% rule can also be extremely helpful for wholesalers, especially those who may be wholesaling deals to house flippers as you might be doing. Keep in mind, this is only a rule of thumb and one of several methods you will use to estimate 
what you should offer on a property. We'll look at another method in just a moment. The 70% rule states that you should pay no more than 70% of a property's ARV minus any repairs. A wholesaler also needs to subtract their fees from that number. Therefore, the 70% rule as it applies to wholesalers is as follows. Your maximum allowable offer equals the ARV times 0.7 minus repairs minus your fee. Let's do some quick math and I'll show you how this would work in the real world. Wholesaler Beth was considering making an offer on 123 Main Street, the property owned by Clarence that we looked at earlier. If you'll recall, we determined the ARV for that house to be approximately $147,333 after comparing it with three comp properties. To determine her offer price, Beth multiplies $147,333 times 0.7 to get $103,133. She then subtracts the cost of the necessary repairs, which she estimates at $20,000, and her desired wholesale fee of $10,000 to arrive at a maximum offer price of $73,133. Problems with the 70% rule. The 70% rule assumes that 30% of that after repair value is going to be spent on holding costs, closing costs on both the buyer and seller side, such as commissions, taxes, attorney fees, title company fees, and more. The flipper's profit and any other charges that come up during the deal. This works well in many markets, but it has some severe limitations. For example, the 70% rule doesn't work as well for a property whose ARV is low, like $50,000. As mentioned earlier, the 30% deducted from the ARV includes the holding costs and closing costs as well as the profit the investor or flipper would want to make. However, 30% of 50 grand is only $15,000, so following the 70% rule, all of the fees, costs, and profit would only add up to $15,000. If the fees and holding costs were to total $10,000, which is about normal, that would leave just $5,000 in profit for the house flipper, and I don't know any house flipper who will take on a risk of flipping for just five grand. So following the 70% rule, a flipper or wholesaler would pay far too much for the property in this case. A similar problem with the 70% rule exists for more expensive properties. The 70% rule would dictate that a home with an ARV of 700000 that needs $50,000 worth of work should produce a maximum allowable offer of 440000 However, in most markets, finding a $700,000 property for 440000 is simply not feasible. A person who sticks exclusively to the 70% rule will likely never find a good deal in that type of market. Furthermore, some investors may spend more or less on fees and costs because of their particular life situation or location. For example, in some states, purchasing a home may require $3,000 in closing costs, while in other states, it might be $6,000. Some investors may have a real estate license, which could save them tens of thousands of dollars in commissions, where other investors might need to pay that commission when they sell. Therefore, a different model may be needed to estimate the maximum allowable offer. For this, we turn to the fixed cost method. The fixed cost method. Another method generally more accurate for determining your maximum allowable offer based on a property's ARV is known as the fixed cost method. The theory behind the fixed cost method is that all the extra charges, like holding costs, utilities, and closing costs, 
can be combined to form one number, known as the fixed costs. To determine your maximum allowable offer, you simply need to work backwards from your ARV, subtracting out your fixed costs and desired profit, the wholesale fee, and the rehab expenses to arrive at your offer. The formula looks like this. Your ARV minus your fixed costs minus investor's profit minus the wholesale fee minus the rehab costs equals your maximum allowable offer. Of course, to do this calculation, you must understand how to determine your fixed costs. The profit, the fee, and the rehab expenses are fairly easy to determine, but discovering the fixed costs will take a little explaining. The best explanation for fixed costs can be found in author Jay Scott's book, The Book on Flipping Houses. Fixed costs are comprised of the various fees, commissions, and costs associated with all parts of the investment project outside the actual rehab costs. Jay Scott goes on to break out those expenses into more specific detail, adding up the total of the most typical fixed costs for his business. There's inspection costs, lender fees, closing costs, mortgage payments, property taxes, utilities, insurance, commissions, selling and closing costs, home warranty, termite letter, and MLS fees. These costs all added together give an investor the fixed cost for a property. Keep in mind, every market is different. So spending some time determining what your costs would be on the listed items is important. For example, if you plan to sell to a landlord, you won't need to worry about the sales commission, selling closing costs, home warranty, or MLS fee because the landlord will be holding on to the property. However, if you sell to a house flipper, you would need to include those figures because the flipper will be selling and will need to account for those numbers. So to determine your fixed costs, create a spreadsheet with the listed items and spend some time researching what these figures would typically be for your area. You don't have to get them all perfect, but estimate conservatively. The nice thing is, after you do this one time, you won't need to do it again for the same kind of property as long as that property is in the same area. This is why we call them fixed costs because we'll use the same fixed number every time. For Jay Scott, that number was $16,400. What will yours be? We'll take an hour and figure it out once and you won't need to do it again for that property type and area. Let's return to the ongoing story of wholesaler Beth and the 123 Main Street house and we'll look at an example of how she used the fixed cost method to determine her maximum allowable offer. Earlier, we determined that the home's ARV was an estimate $147,333. We also calculated, when discussing the 70% rule, that the rehab cost would be approximately $20,000. This time, we'll use the fixed cost method to come up with the maximum allowable offer. Beth determines that the fixed costs would total $19,000. The house flipper, Jackson, that Beth is planning to sell the home to, likes to make $20,000 minimum on any project, so we'll use that number for the desired profit. Beth is aiming for a $10,000 wholesale fee, and Beth estimates that the rehab will cost approximately $20,000 and gets a local contractor to agree to that number. Therefore, a $147,333 ARV minus those $19,000 in fixed costs minus a $20,000 profit for the flipper, Jackson, minus a $10,000 wholesale fee to Beth, minus the $20,000 in rehab costs, equals a $78,333 
maximum allowable offer. Beth has determined that the most she could pay for this property is 78,333 using the fixed cost method. If you'll recall, we determined earlier that using the 70% rule, Beth could pay 73,133. These numbers are fairly close, so they should give you a pretty good indication that we're approaching a good maximum allowable offer for this property. Which method should you use? The 70% rule is a good rule of thumb in a lot of markets, but many times it will not work because prices are much higher or much lower in different areas, and it simply doesn't make sense. I recommend that you take some time to run a few hypothetical analyses to practice, especially using numbers that are realistic for your area. Use the 70% rule if you can in your area for a quick analysis, but rely on the fixed $20,000 in rehab costs equals a $78,333 maximum allowable offer. Beth has determined that the most she could pay for this property is $78,333 using the fixed cost method. If you'll recall, we determined earlier that using the 70% rule, Beth could pay $73,133. These numbers are fairly close, so they should give you a pretty good indication that we're approaching a good maximum allowable offer for this property. Which method should you use? The 70% rule is a good rule of thumb in a lot of markets, but many times it will not work because prices are much higher or much lower in different areas, and it simply doesn't make sense. I recommend that you take some time to run a few hypothetical analyses to practice, especially using numbers that are realistic for your area. Use the 70% rule if you can in your area for a quick analysis, but rely on the fixed cost method to ensure you make the offer correct. And of course, if you'd like a more in-depth look at analyzing deals quickly using software, BiggerPockets has created a wholesale calculator you can get at biggerpockets.com slash calc. Now, at this point, you hopefully have a solid grasp on the math that goes into a wholesale deal. However, there is one sticky point in the math equation that we have not yet covered, estimating the rehab costs. Let's talk about that now. Estimating rehab costs. One of the things investors who buy from wholesalers complain about the most with regard to buying from the wholesaler is the wholesaler's inability to accurately estimate rehab costs. Dude, I got this sweet deal that only needs like $5,000 worth of work is a lie and every cash buyer knows it. The fact is, the better you can estimate rehab costs, the more successful you'll be. Why? Well, here's a few reasons. First, by understanding how much it will cost to rehab a property, you can arrive at an accurate maximum allowable offer and avoid paying too much. And second, by understanding how much a rehab will cost, you can accurately present the information to your cash buyer in an easy to comprehend way. Therefore, we'll spend a little bit of time on the concepts of estimating rehab costs. Keep in mind, this section will not be the end-all be-all explanation of how to accurately estimate rehab costs. For that, you'll want to get a copy of The Book on Estimating Rehab Costs by Jay Scott. Every wholesaler should have a copy of this book and commit to fully understanding the concepts therein. In lieu of that book, however, I'll present my six-step process for estimating rehab costs here. First, understand your buyer and the neighborhood. Before you start calculating how much it will cost to rehab the property, you need to understand what the final product should look like. There are high-end remodels that take months and there are quick flips that just take days. 
Understanding the level of finishing to which your buyer plans to rehab the property is imperative. Also, looking at the neighborhood around the property will give you a good indication of how far the rehab will need to go. Typically, most investors don't want to go too far above and beyond the level of other properties in the neighborhood. Therefore, if the home is in a working class neighborhood with mostly working class rentals, you don't need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a fancy rehab. Number two, tour the property in detail. Next, with a good understanding of how you want the finished product to look, walk through the property very slowly. Take a lot of photos or record a video with your cell phone that you can easily recall the condition later. Trust me, you're not going to remember all of it. Furthermore, photos will help you sell the property later to the cash buyer. If the seller is home, be sure to let them know you'll be taking pictures that they're for analysis and that you won't be making these photos public. Don't make them feel like you're invading their privacy. Third, write down the problems in each part of the property. While you are still on site at the property, go room by room and write down its condition as well as any needed repairs that you notice. For example, if you walk into the living room and see carpet that looks and smells like dog urine, write down, replace carpet in living room. Also, write down a quick estimate of the size of the room. It doesn't need to be exact, just make your best guess. Be sure to take a look at the exterior of the home as well and pay attention to any big issues like the condition of the roof, siding, and any outbuildings. Fourth, Condense your list into categories. Next, you'll want to take your comprehensive list of repairs and classify each into a category. For example, if the living room needs carpet, the bedroom needs carpet, and the kitchen needs vinyl, group all of them together and include them under the category flooring. Fifth, determine a rehab price for each category. Once you have your categories spelled out, it's time for the most difficult part, estimating the rehab amount for each category. However, once everything's been broken down into these categories, calculating an accurate estimate is much easier as opposed to looking at the entire project. Let's return to the example of the flooring estimate. We may determine that we need approximately 1,000 square feet of carpet and another 500 square feet of vinyl. With that information, we can call up a local flooring or big box store and ask what they charge for the flooring we need. And speaking of big box stores, I recommend spending a lot of time in them at the beginning. Learn how much materials cost for the most common repairs, such as flooring, paint, cabinets, counters, appliances. To get a really rough estimate on how much those items might cost in labor, double the price of the materials. Again, this provides just a rough estimate, but I find it to be fairly accurate. Additionally, you can go online and search sites such as Craigslist to see how much contractors are asking for certain jobs, such as replacing carpet or painting. Six. When in doubt, ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You can do this in a few different ways. You can visit the BiggerPockets forums and ask people there what they're paying. This is an incredibly useful tool because you're able to get an inside look at what your potential cash buyers are actually spending. You could also ask a local contractor for help. Although you might need to pay them for their time, the cost of an hour or two of consulting with this professional at the house would be an investment that will help you for years to come. Many wholesalers actually include a detailed line-by-line -line bid from a licensed contractor with their presentations to a cash buyer, and I actually highly recommend doing that. The contractor will likely offer the bid for free because there's a good chance the cash buyer will end up using them on the job, and you will not have to do the work of estimating the project. Or third, you could ask a local real estate investor or another wholesaler to come with you. 
Getting good at estimating rehab costs quickly is an important skill to have. So consider working on your first deal or two with someone who's been around the block and can share their knowledge. Also keep in mind at biggerpockets.com slash Kelk, you can access the Bigger Pockets Rehab Estimation Calculator, which systematizes this entire process. How accurate do you need to be in your rehab estimates? As close as you can, but not perfect. After all, prices vary wildly on the rehabs, depending on the contractor used, so you don't necessarily need to know the precise price. As most house flippers and homeowners know, one contractor may bid $20,000 on a rehab, while another bids $40,000. You don't know what kind of contractor your cash buyer will use, so don't think you need to have the number exact. Do the best you can, but don't spend dozens of hours getting some mythical perfect number. The important thing is not to tarnish your reputation by estimating way too low or too high. If you tell a cash buyer that a home needs $5,000 worth of work, and after they inspect it, they realize it needs a new roof, siding, foundation, paint, carpet, and cabinets, you will hurt your reputation and will likely never work with them again. However, if you said that same job needed $40,000 worth of work and the cash buyer estimates $50,000, it's not going to completely damage your reputation, though you may need to adjust your fee or renegotiate with the seller or just find another cash buyer who can get the work done for less. So take the time needed to learn how to estimate the rehab costs and calculate a ballpark figure. Let the cash buyer count the nails while you move on to the next property. It gets easier. Finally, one last tip about estimating rehab costs. Just as in finding the ARV we talked about earlier, estimating rehab costs get easier. After several deals, you will be able to look at a property and within minutes offer a ballpark figure to the seller. So don't sweat it too much at the beginning. Just follow the six-step process I outlined and you'll do just fine. The difficulty of being a wholesaler. As you may have noticed by now, the formulas that house flippers and landlords use to determine their maximum allowable offer is similar to the formulas you would use as a wholesaler, except you have to offer less than they would because you need to incorporate your fee into the offer to make sure you get paid. In this regard, a wholesaler's job of finding deals is actually more difficult than that of a buy and hold investor or a house flipper. The wholesaler must identify a great deal and then get an even better deal to cover their fee. A wholesaler is therefore competing not only against retail buyers, but also against every other investor and at a disadvantage because they need to get the property for an even lower price. Now don't let this discourage you though, because this may not be as tough as you think. Most landlords are not marketers. Most flippers are not marketers. Most retail buyers for sure are not marketers. Being a great wholesaler therefore comes down to your marketing skills, which we covered earlier. At this point, you should have a solid understanding of the math involved in a wholesale deal and be able to determine roughly how much you should pay for a property. Now the time has come to turn the theoretical into the practical and learn how to negotiate with sellers. Making your offer and negotiating with sellers. At this point, you've met with a motivated seller, looked at the property, determined its ARV, estimated the repair costs, and figured out your maximum allowable offer. Now, you need to present your offer to the seller. But how? This section will walk you step-by-step step through the process of presenting and negotiating deals with motivated sellers. I'll warn you right now, at the start, you may be terrible at this step, but that's okay. Negotiation is an art form that takes a lot of practice to master. So consider every negotiation practice for the one to follow and just do your best.
Presenting your offer. Once you have your maximum allowable offer, you must present it to the sellers. Now this can be done in person or over the phone or even via email or fax or snail mail. Whatever you feel will make the seller the most comfortable. Personally, I believe an in-person offer is best, but in time, you'll find what works best for you. I think asking the seller, what do you believe this home should sell for in its current condition is a wise way to start. Then wait. Likely, they're going to respond with a high dream number. Most sellers know that in negotiation, you're going to talk them down, so they'll start high. However, asking this question is key because it will give you a point of reference. You can pose this question over the phone the first time you talk with them, which is not a bad idea. But I also recommend asking them right before you make your offer. Get them to name a price. Maybe it'll be completely reasonable and you can simply shake hands and move on, but most likely it'll be high. At this point, a great thing to say is something along the lines of, well, gee, Bob, that's quite a bit higher than I can go. Is that the best you can do? In almost every case, no matter what the negotiation is, the person will drop their initial price and say something like, well, I can go to blank, but no lower. At this point, you can begin the real negotiation. Of course, you may want to present an initial offer that is lower than your maximum allowable offer, which will give you room to move up. However, if you offer too low to start, you risk insulting the seller and losing the deal altogether. This is the game of negotiation, and thousands of books have been written on the art of negotiation, so I can barely scratch the surface here. However, here are a few quick tips that have worked well for me and other investors when negotiating with sellers. First, build rapport. I don't suggest that you be disingenuous, but try to build a solid relationship quickly with the motivated seller. You don't need to come out swinging right away, but find some common ground and let your personality shine through. Look for their pain point. Although your biggest motivator is probably price, it might not be the seller's primary motivator. Discover why the seller wants to sell and find a solution that solves their problem while giving you the price you need. For example, if you're talking with a motivated seller who is overwhelmed with the management of their property, speed may be far more important than price. Look for cues that shows you what their true motivation is because what they say may not be always the true issue. Listen more than you speak. Negotiations can be awkward, so your natural inclination will be to talk. Don't. Listen and ask questions. Let the other party speak as much as they want because every word they say can help you get a better deal. Blame it on the higher authority. If a motivated seller sees you as a rich shark, they will have a hard time discounting the price to a reasonable one because in their mind, well, you can afford it. However, if you can shift the blame for the low offer on someone else, you become an advocate for the seller and the higher authority becomes the bad guy. For example, let the seller know that your partner or your cash buyer needs to spend X amount or they can't do the deal. This can keep you in the seller's good graces while enabling you to negotiate strongly. Ask, is that unreasonable? This is one of my favorite negotiation strategies. No one likes to appear unreasonable. So when you ask, does that sound unreasonable? The person typically feels compelled and says, no, I don't think so. Be okay with walking away, but don't. Generally, the person who is most desperate in a negotiation is the one who loses, which is why you need to be okay with walking away. That said, just because you don't need to get the deal, you should not walk away too easily. Negotiate, negotiate, negotiate as long as possible to get what you want. One of two things will happen after negotiations. You will either come up with an agreement or you won't. If not, 
Don't consider it a loss and continue to follow up with that seller. Many wholesaling contracts have been won months after the initial negotiation when the seller comes to grips with the true value of their property. Now, if they do agree to your terms, it's time to sign the contract. Signing the contract. A contract is a legal document that states the terms agreed upon by both parties in the transaction. Generally, I recommend that when you are going to meet with a seller, you fill the form out in its entirety so that once you have agreed on a price, you don't need to hang around filling in all the paperwork. This just gives the seller a chance to get cold feet. Simply leave the price line or other negotiable terms and the signature lines blank. If you don't already have a real estate contract, here's a few places you can get one. The Bigger Pockets File Place, Title and Escrow Companies, Office Supply Stores, From a Lawyer, From Other Investors, Through Real Estate Clubs, From a Real Estate Agent. Real estate contracts are state-specific legal forms, so even though you can find these forms abundantly online for free, keep in mind that these are just general samples, so spend a few dollars to have your attorney look over the form you plan to use to make sure it is valid and applicable for your location. While your contract can be fairly short and simple, be sure that it states at least the following. The address and legal description of the property, the seller's name, the buyer's name, and or assigns on the buyer's name line if you'll be assigning the property. I'll talk more about this in a minute. Price, closing date, today's date, earnest money amount. I'll cover that too in a minute. And contingencies. I'll also talk about that. Earnest money. Your earnest money is a deposit paid to the seller showing your good faith to complete the contract as promised. Although you may or may not be required by law in your state to include earnest money, you will probably want to include some just to ensure the contract is fully legal. Check with an attorney to see what contract law requires in your state. The amount of earnest money you put down depends on whatever the seller feels okay with because you want to offer as little as possible. In fact, many wholesalers put down just $1 as a technicality and leave it at that. Other wholesalers put nothing down. However, your seller may ask you for a little more and you'll have to decide if that's the right thing to do based on the situation. Now, no matter what the amount is, I recommend never giving the earnest money directly to the seller. I mean, if it's an extremely small amount, like a dollar, feel free. Instead, a third party, usually the title company or an attorney, should hold the earnest money. This way, the seller can't just steal your money and sell the property to someone else, thereby forcing you to take legal action, which likely wouldn't be worth it. Having a third party hold the earnest money protects you. Contingencies. A contingency is a clause within a contract that states under what circumstances you are allowed to back out of the contract legally. Although you could put pretty much any contingency on your contract, like this contract is contingent upon the seller wearing a black shirt on the day of closing, I recommend skipping anything weird and using only the minimum required to make sure you're safe. Many wholesalers use a contingency like this agreement is subject to finding a qualified buyer or this agreement is subject to approval from my partner or this agreement is subject to a thorough inspection of the premise and approval of its condition. Please understand these are just examples. Your contingencies must be legal in your state, so be sure to have your contract reviewed by an attorney. You should never use a contingency to tie up properties only to later back out of the agreement because you hadn't done your homework. Contingencies are meant to protect you legally in case something goes wrong. They're not to be used to compensate for your irresponsibility. This will only damage your reputation. If you've done your homework and the math correctly, you should not need to use your contingency. Once you have your contract with the seller signed, it's time to move on and get that property into the hands of someone who can purchase it. 
We call these people cash buyers, and in the next section, we'll dive into exactly what they are, how to find them, and the process for getting paid for your work in finding the deal. Finding and working with cash buyers. At this point, you've found a great deal, negotiated with a seller, and signed a contract for a great price. Now you need to get rid of that contract and get paid. This section will show you how to find real cash buyers for your next wholesale deal and explain what to do with them once you've found them. Introduction to Cash Buyers First of all, what do we mean by cash buyer and why is it important? A cash buyer is any person or business that can buy your wholesale deal from you without needing to use traditional financing. In other words, when you present the perfect deal, they do not need to run to the bank and wait six weeks for a loan to close in a wholesaling situation that typically doesn't work. However, it doesn't mean that you need to only find wealthy people with millions of dollars in the bank, though that would be great. Anyone with access to cash financing has a potential to be a great cash buyer. Specifically, that can mean anyone with the following. Someone who uses a hard money lender to fund a deal, like in Chapter 5. Someone who uses a line of credit that they already have access to, like Chapter 4. Or someone who has a partner who can fund the deal with cash, like Chapter 3. So how do you find those cash buyers? We'll get to that in just a minute, but first let's talk about one of the most common questions every new wholesaler seems to ask. What comes first? Finding cash buyers or finding the deal? The chicken or the egg? It's a classic question. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? In the wholesaling world, it's what comes first, the cash buyer or the deal? After all, the deal is what will attract the cash buyer, but without the cash buyer, you can't do anything with the deal. The question stops many new investors from even taking action in the first place. The problem is compounded because of all the wholesaling gurus out there. You sign up for a free seminar on wholesaling, get upsold to a weekend boot camp, and the only thing you get out of it is how to build your cash buyers list. Well, here's a little secret. Finding cash buyers is the easiest part of the entire wholesaling process. Seriously, you're about to be amazed at just how easy and cheap it is to find more cash buyers than you'll ever need in order to wholesale. I believe this is why the gurus use the phrase cash buyers so frequently. They know that if they can convince you that finding cash buyers is a solution to all your problems, you'll pay big money to find that secret and you'll be convinced that you're a legitimate wholesaler in that they're God. They're not. Every day, newbie wholesalers straight from the latest and greatest guru bootcamp jump onto the Bigger Pockets marketplace and place an ad saying, I'm looking to build my cash buyers list. However, after that initial post, we never hear from them again. They were duped into thinking that if only they had cash buyers, everything would fall into place. It's actually kind of sad. The truth is, cash buyers are everywhere, but cash buyers do not mean anything if you don't know how to get a good deal. So we're back to the original question. What comes first, the cash buyer or the deal? It doesn't matter. You can find the cash buyer or you can find the deal or vice versa. Either way, finding the deal is the hard part and you need to understand that. Once you realize that locating cash buyers as a first step or a last step doesn't change the outcome, the issue becomes much less important. So do both. Find cash buyers while you're marketing for good deals. The one major benefit to finding cash buyers first is being able to gain some free education from them on what makes a good deal to them. Therefore, if you really need an answer to the question, what comes first, go find one cash buyer who's willing to train you on what they want from a deal. Then go out and find the perfect deal for them. You can build your business from there. How many cash buyers do you need? For whatever reason, the phrase cash buyers list gets tossed around a lot in guru circles. It sounds sexy, doesn't it? 
There are hundreds of investors on my list fighting for all my good deals. You don't need hundreds of cash buyers. You probably don't even need dozens. A great wholesaler only needs a small handful because their deals are good enough. They don't need to shop their deals around to hundreds of potential cash buyers hoping one of them is desperate or stupid enough to pay a ridiculous price for a worthless property. If you have a good deal, you won't have a problem selling that deal. I do recommend having a small handful of cash buyers because every investor has their own niche, their own strategy, their own location. Cash buyer Bob may be looking for single family homes in Seattle that he can buy for $350,000 that he can flip. While cash buyer Belinda might be looking for single family homes in Tacoma that she can buy for $200,000 that she can rent out. Therefore, it is good to have cash buyers in multiple niches and strategies to cover all your bases and handle whatever legitimate deal comes across your plate. Again, you don't need hundreds of cash buyers on a buyer's list. However, as long as you're not using the search for cash buyers as an excuse to think you are doing real work, you should be always updating your buyer's list. When you are chatting with potential cash buyers, it's smart to pre-qualify them. Many people who claim to be cash buyers may just be newbies fresh out of a boot camp and posing as someone who can make things happen. When wholesaling, you only want to deal with legitimate cash buyers who are experienced and trustworthy. I recommend interviewing all potential cash buyers and asking questions like, how many deals have you purchased in the last six months? How quickly can you close? Are you working with other wholesalers? What kind of properties specifically are you looking for? What kind of LTV are you looking for? What kind of property conditions will you accept? These questions will help you identify who is a legitimate cash buyer and who is just a wannabe tire kicker. Furthermore, by simply asking these questions to the cash buyers, they'll know that you know what you're talking about. Now, let's get into the actual practice of finding cash buyers. As I said, I think you'll be surprised at how easy this can be. In fact, let me give you 10 quick methods. 10 strategies for finding cash buyers. Number one, landlords on Craigslist. Head to your local Craigslist houses or apartments for rent section, and you'll instantly find a huge list of property owners along with their phone numbers and property addresses. Now true, not all these owners will be cash buyers, but most investors with enough knowledge to buy multiple properties could also probably pull off a cash deal. Two, real estate clubs. At your local real estate investing club or landlord organization or meetup, you'll likely encounter a variety of cash buyers. So strike up a conversation with everyone you can and ask what their specialty is and let them know what you do. Chances are you'll find some great business relationships that way. To find a local meetup in your area, be sure to check out biggerpockets.com slash events. You can find meetups all around the country happening all the time. You can even start your own meetup there. Number three, real estate agents. Real estate agents have some special tools at their fingertips that non-agents don't have, especially when searching recent sales. If you can build a solid relationship with an agent, they can easily supply you with a list of all recent cash sales in any nearby location. Although they may not be able to get you the property owner's name or address or phone number, maybe they can, they can easily give you the property addresses and then you can search the online public records for names and personal information. Fourth, online lead capture. If you have a website, you can easily set up a lead capture form that allows potential cash buyers to submit their name and contact information if they'd like to be added to your buyers list. You can drive traffic to your webpage through social media, online or traditional advertising, your bigger pockets profile, or good old Craigslist. Number five, public record. 
Your local public records office has information about every sale in your area and is perhaps the most comprehensive source of cash buyers. Although every county is different in the way they have this information, you can begin by doing a Google search of your local county assessor's page or records office. When a house is purchased with financing in a state that uses mortgages, two primary documents are recorded with the county. The deed, which shows the change in ownership, and the lien from the loan. On a cash sale, there will be no lien from the loan. Another good way to search the public record is through a local title company. They can provide, with or without a fee, a list of properties that have sold without a mortgage lien. Number six, Craigslist ads. Unlike a lot of real estate gurus, I don't recommend creating fake real estate listings just to get the phone ringing. However, creating ads on Craigslist for future wholesale deals is more than appropriate and should get people calling. A simple subject line that states, wholesale real estate deals at 70% ARV, and a short ad explaining how you wholesale deals should get people's interest and connect you with some serious cash buyers. Number seven, courthouse steps. When a person buys at the courthouse steps, typically they got to have all cash. Therefore, anyone bidding on a property at the courthouse is probably a cash buyer. Go to these auctions early and strike up conversations, hand out business cards, collect some, and create long-lasting business relationships. Number eight, hard money lenders. Hard money lenders can be a terrific source of referrals to cash buyers because if you'll recall, a cash buyer doesn't necessarily need to have all of the cash in the bank and they could use hard money to close with all cash. Connecting you with their clients is in a hard money lender's best interest because you, in turn, will provide them with additional business. It's a win-win-win. Number nine, list source. While listsource.com is the most common place for wholesalers to create a list of potential motivated sellers, it can also be a great place to find cash buyers. Use the site to search for properties purchased within a specific period of time and focus on absentee owners who didn't record a deed of trust. This will give you a list of cash buyers for just pennies per item. Number 10, bigger pockets. Finally, our very own biggerpockets.com is an incredible place to find and screen potential cash buyers. Among our more than 1.3 million members are thousands of cash buyers looking for deals on our site every day. Visit and use biggerpockets.com slash meet to find members in your area and start building relationships with those who appear to be big players in the real estate space. You can also use this space as a great opportunity to build your reputation by engaging with other members, answering questions, and getting involved. Should you present your deal to one cash buyer or multiple? At this point, you should have a solid list of potential cash buyers for your deals, or at least know how to build it. But how do you present your latest deal to them? Approach them all at once or one at a time? Should you send out a large blast email to everyone on your list or pick up the phone and call each one individually? Likely, you'll discover a strategy that works for you and there's not one right way to do it. But let me offer a few tips. An email is not as personal as a phone call, so I recommend using the phone when first starting. Once you have an established track record with your cash buyers, you can start sending them emails or text messages. Also, find out which form of communication your various cash buyers prefer and cater to them as much as possible. If you send out your potential deal to everyone, you may get some interest, but you also might annoy those who would not be interested in that kind of deal. So consider pitching the deal only to those who seem most serious. And third, if you have a great relationship with one of your cash buyers, consider offering the deal to them first, thereby providing them a limited moment of exclusivity. 
This might help deepen your relationship and show them that you value their business. How to present the deal to the cash buyer. Hopefully, you've used your smart marketing and negotiation skills to snag a killer good deal so you don't need to pitch the property in desperation. However, you do need to adequately present the information to your cash buyer so they can make the best decision possible, which means you need to prepare. This is especially true when pitching a deal to a cash buyer for the first time because you have not yet built up the trust needed for them to take your word for it. I recommend that when presenting to a cash buyer, you present your deal in the form of an easy-to-understand packet of information that the cash buyer can look through. The more work you do in advance means the less work they have to do, which means chances are greater that they'll say yes. At a minimum, I recommend including the following. The property address and details. The financial outlook for either a flip or rental. The property condition and repairs needed. A bid from a contractor for the cost of repairs needed. Optional, but very helpful. Photos of the property inside and out. Comparable sales for the neighborhood to justify your assumed ARV. Remember, the less work you make your cash buyers do, the better chance you have of selling the deal to them and making your desired profit. Cash buyers will want to check out the property for themselves, so you will need to arrange a time for the buyer to do a walkthrough. If they like what they see and agree to the terms you've offered, you have a deal and can move on. You may need to negotiate with the cash buyer, so be prepared for the discussion and know exactly how low you can go and still make an acceptable profit. Getting a non-refundable fee from your cash buyer. You found the deal, negotiated a great price, found a cash buyer, and your cash buyer has agreed to work with you because of your fabulous marketing package. Well, now what? Now, it's important that you receive a non-refundable fee from your cash buyer to transfer the contract to them. Why? Because you don't want them to back out of the deal. You likely put down some earnest money on the deal yourself, so requiring this fee of your cash buyer is necessary to make sure you don't lose your money if they get cold feet. The amount of the fee depends on the size of the deal, your relationship with the buyer, and your negotiation skills. I recommend asking for at least $1,000 and potentially up to $5,000 if not more. After all, your cash buyer has seen the property, and inspected it to their satisfaction before handing over the deposit. And they are paying in cash, so they should have no major reason to back out. If they bulk at the fee, consider finding a new cash buyer or lowering the amount, but make sure they understand that the only reason you're requiring such a fee is to protect yourself from something if it goes wrong at closing. Finally, you'll sign the necessary paperwork and begin the process of closing. Let's discuss the different legal ways you can wholesale a property to a cash buyer. Legally putting together a wholesale deal. A wholesale deal can be legally put together in many different ways, and the method you will use will depend on the transaction, your state laws, and other circumstances. For this reason, I want to give you a thorough overview of the different ways to close a wholesale deal so you can choose the one that works best for you and your location. The different strategies for putting together a wholesale deal can be a little confusing, so I want to return to the story I provided earlier in the chapter about wholesaler Beth and the deal she bought from Clarence and sold to Jackson. In that example, Beth used an assignment, so I'll talk about this method first. Assignments. To assign a contract simply means to give the contract to someone else, which Beth can do because of the way she wrote the contract. Recall that Beth told Clarence that either she or a business associate of hers will buy the home, which she communicated on the official purchase and sale contract by writing, 
quote, Beth and slash or assigns, end quote, in the blank space meant for the buyer's name. In other words, the legal buyer of the property will be Beth and or someone to whom she assigns the contract. Contract assignments are done every day in the business world, and there's nothing illegal or immoral about them as long as you aren't trying to deceive someone and pull the wool over their eyes. Note that Beth clearly lets Clarence know that she may not be the one who actually buys the house. As for Clarence, he doesn't care. He's just happy to get out of the double payment he's been paying and move on with his life. To avoid complications later on and to stay 100% ethical, you gotta let your buyer know if you plan on wholesaling the deal. Though using terms like wholesaling might just confuse them, so stick with I or a business partner of mine will buy it to keep things simple. Many wholesalers do not use assignments when closing a wholesale deal, really for two reasons. First, most bank REOs, like foreclosed properties being sold by a bank, don't allow and or assigns to be written on the contract. So if you're working with foreclosures, the assignment strategy is just not an option. But secondly, when doing an assignment, the seller will likely see on their closing paperwork the assignment fee that the wholesaler, you, are going to receive. Now, depending on the size of the fee, the wholesaler might prefer to keep that fee amount private as to not rock the boat with the seller. In addition to assignments, two other strategies are commonly used by wholesalers, simultaneous closings and back-to-back closings. Now, this is where things get a little confusing. You see, different real estate investors have different names for these strategies. No doubt, someone will read this and say, that's not a simultaneous closing, or that's not a back-to-back closing, or that's not a double closing. In fact, there is no standard definition for either of these strategies. So go ahead, search online, and you'll see what I mean. But since I'm the one writing the book, I figure I should establish some set terms and definitions. Now keep in mind, however, that in the end, what you call a strategy doesn't matter. The concepts are what you need to know, so keep reading. Both techniques involve actually buying the property yourself, walking, either physically or just hypothetically, to another room at the title company or the attorney's office, and then immediately selling the property to a buyer, often within just minutes, though you could do it over several days. Now, the difference between the two techniques, a simultaneous closing and a back-to-back closing, lies in the way the deal is funded. You see, purchasing real estate requires money, And even if you only own a property for 10 minutes, you would still need to pay for that property. So how do you come up with the funds? Well, the answer to that question is what differentiates these two techniques. So let's look at each one individually. A simultaneous or a double closing. A simultaneous closing, also known as a double closing, uses the end buyer's cash to fund both purchases. In other words, the end buyer, the cash buyer's cash, will fund your purchase and at that same cash will pay you for the property. Confused yet? (laughs) Well, let me try to explain by adapting the Beth, Clarence, and Jackson story from earlier in the chapter. So Clarence shows up at the title company to sign the documents to sell his home to Beth. In the next room, Jackson is waiting to buy the property. So Jackson's bank sends a wire transfer of $95,500 to the title company, and he signs the paperwork to buy the property from Beth. Beth then receives, on paper, $95,500. She then goes back to Clarence in the adjacent room and buys the property from him for $85,000. In other words, Beth simply sold the property at almost the same time as she bought it using funds from the end buyer. Now, do you see a problem here? 
Simultaneous closings are fairly uncommon today because they involve selling someone's property before they even own it, as Beth does in our example. Yeah, the title company can figure out the paperwork side of things, hopefully, but most are uncomfortable with this kind of arrangement. Furthermore, some states do not legally allow this kind of funding. Therefore, most wholesalers skip this simultaneous closing and instead rely on either an assignment or a back-to-back -back closing, which we'll explore next. The back-to-back -back closing is very similar to a simultaneous closing, but rather than using the buyer's funds for the purchase, the wholesaler uses other funds to make the deal happen. Most people I know, however, don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars just sitting around waiting to be used for a few hours to fund a quick wholesale deal. So if a wholesaler doesn't have such funds readily available, how can they come up with the cash needed for a back-to-back -back closing? Of course, the wholesaler only needs the funds for a few minutes, maybe a few hours. Well, luckily, there's a simple solution. Transactional lenders. A transactional lender is a special kind of lender who funds back-to-back -back closings. They wire money to the title company for a short time, like a few days max. And the title company uses that money to buy the property and then resell it again a few minutes later. These lenders can be found nationwide, but I recommend starting with a local hard money lender who has experience with these kind of transactions. Because the transaction is almost risk-free for the lender, finding transactional lending should not be that difficult. The fees for these transactions typically range from 1% to 3% of the total transaction amount. So be sure to figure those extra costs into your wholesaling math if you can't do an assignment and need to do a back-to-back -back closing. One negative aspect of the back-to-back -back closing involves the extra costs that must be incorporated into the deal. Because the wholesaler is actually legally purchasing the property, even if only a few minutes, charges can add up quickly in addition to the transaction lender's fee. These costs include additional document preparation fees, additional title company and attorney fees, additional recording fees, among others. These can easily add extra thousand dollars or more to your bottom line, so be sure to factor these costs into the deal. You don't want to wholesale a property for three grand only to pay $2,000 to a transactional lender and another $1,000 in extra closing costs. Whatever method you use to close the transaction, understand that you will really only need to figure the stuff out once. It may feel cumbersome and confusing at the beginning, but I encourage you to push through and you'll find all the answers you need by just doing. And if you get stuck, visit the BiggerPockets forums or attend a local real estate meetup and ask for help from others. There are plenty of wholesalers out there who would love to help you reach your goals, so don't be afraid to ask. Getting paid. Finally, the title company or attorney who closes the deal will issue a check for you, probably on the day of closing, though it could take a day or two, I encourage you to use this check to continue growing your real estate wholesaling business, reinvesting your profits into more marketing and potentially more help to manage the increased business. Remember, a single deal is not going to get you any closer to financial freedom. You need to develop a business that can consistently provide leads and generate a great income. Resist the temptation to buy that new car and reinvest the profits into your future instead. Wrapping it up, wholesaling. In this chapter, we've walked through the entire wholesaling process from beginning to end. We've examined the details of a wholesale deal, from the basics of finding incredible deals to smart marketing tactics. We've looked at two different methods of analyzing a potential wholesale deal. We've covered negotiation and making an offer, as well as signing the contract with the seller. Finally, we talked about finding cash buyers for selling the deals too, as well as the legal techniques you can use to make that transaction a smooth one.
At this point, I hope you have all of the knowledge you need to begin wholesaling your first freedom. You need to develop a business that can consistently provide leads and generate a great income. Resist the temptation to buy that new car and reinvest the profits into your future instead. Wrapping it up, wholesaling. In this chapter, we've walked through the entire wholesaling process from beginning to end. We've examined the details of a wholesale deal from the basics of finding incredible deals to smart marketing tactics. We've looked at two different methods of analyzing a potential wholesale deal. We've covered negotiation and making an offer as well as signing the contract with the seller. Finally, we talked about finding cash buyers for selling the deals too, as well as the legal techniques you can use to make that transaction a smooth one. At this point, I hope you have all of the knowledge you need to begin wholesaling your first or next deal. Wholesaling requires dedication, hard work, smart marketing, and a commitment to success in order to build serious income from the business. If you feel up for the challenge and want to add wholesaling to your toolbox, you now have everything you need to make it happen. Throughout this book, we've looked at almost a dozen different strategies for investing in real estate with little to no money of your own. Although wholesaling may not easily fit within the strict definition of investing, I included it because it does fit the business of a real estate investor, and it can be done with little to nothing out of pocket. I want to make sure that when leads come in for your business, you have every opportunity to succeed with them. So I hope this chapter on wholesaling can help you earn more income in your business and live the life of your dreams. In the next and final chapter of this book, we'll tie all these different strategies together and help you think creatively about the entire world of financing. I believe chapter 10 will be the most important chapter of this book, so continue when you're ready. Chapter 10, Creative Combinations. The final strategy I wanna talk about isn't actually a strategy at all, but a mindset, and I firmly believe this is the most important chapter in the whole book. It's important to understand that the approaches covered in these chapters are not the only cut and dry way to creatively invest in real estate. They represent just a sample of what's possible when you mix and match different methods. In chapter one, we talked about how creative real estate investing is similar to a handyman doing a construction job. The handyman could face a lot of different problems on a job site, so his having a fully stocked toolbox is essential. This is the theory behind this book and why I've spent the previous nine chapters exploring the various tools you can use in your creative real estate investing business. After all, the more tools you have at your disposal, the larger projects you can tackle and the more successful you can be. However, as every handyman knows, seldom is one tool enough to finish a job. Instead, a combination of tools and creative thinking is needed to truly make something magical happen. This chapter is, in my opinion, designed to help you see the big picture and change the way you think. Creative real estate investing is not about using one tool or another. It's about using whatever tool you need to make something happen. Therefore, the final strategy is one I like to call creative combinations because it involves mixing and matching the various approaches discussed in this book to fit your deal or property. Explaining exactly what a creative combination is, is difficult because there are millions of possibilities. Instead, let's look at a few brief examples that combine aspects from different strategies to close more deals with less or no money out of pocket. Example one, a partner or hard money to refinance. Jillian found an incredible deal on a fourplex that she can get for $400,000, but she has very little cash to work with. Additionally, 
The fourplex is vacant and has some cosmetic issues that will need to be fixed before any unit can be rented out. Jillian estimates these repairs will cost approximately $40,000, but she's done her research and she feels this fourplex will provide almost $5,000 per month in income once fixed up. She knows the cash flow will be amazing and she'll have a good amount of equity to deal with. To make the deal happen, Jillian reaches out to several local hard money lenders. However, she finds that even though the deal is incredible, because it's her very first deal, lenders are too nervous to cover the full purchase price and the repairs. Instead, they offer to fund the purchase price if she can come up with the repair money. Well, Jillian doesn't have anywhere close to the $40,000 she needs for this, but rather than saying, I can't afford it, turning her brain off and giving up on the deal, she starts to think creatively and asks herself, well, how do I afford it? So Jillian comes up with an idea. She draws up a solid business plan for renting the property that shows the potential for the property and includes bids from contractors. She takes the plan to a family friend, Grant, who has expressed some interest in real estate. When she explains the deal to him, Grant is impressed and convinced, so he and Jillian form a partnership to get the property together. The partnership will look like this. First, the hard money lender will fund the purchase price of the property for a one-year term. Grant will fund the entire $40,000 repair budget and holding costs for the property, but he will be purely a passive investor in how the deal is run and the property is managed. Grant will also use his credit and income to help secure long-term financing. Jillian will manage the rehab, deal with the bills and the contractor, and manage the property manager for the life of the partnership. They end up closing on the property and after all is said and done, they have roughly $450,000 total into the property, including various fees, though not a penny actually came from Jillian. Because of Grant's strong income and credit, the two have no problem obtaining a refinance for 75% of the appraised value. It actually appraises for $600,000 after six months. So their new loan ends up being for $450,000. Now, not only does Jillian have no money invested, but Grant also has all of his money back. So now they can go out and repeat the process. The property brings in $5,000 per month in income, and after all expenses, there is over $1,500 per month in positive cash flow, all on a no money down deal for Jillian because she used a combination of creative financing methods. Remember, this is just one example of what's possible. Do you see any other ways Jillian could have accomplished this deal? This is your chance to start thinking creatively. Example two, the master lease option to partial seller financing. Roland is interested in a 12-unit apartment complex that's been listed for several months. The owners seem motivated and they've dropped their price several times, starting at $650,000, then lowering it down to $550,000. Roland has only a few thousand dollars to work with, clearly not enough for the 25% down payment his local bank would require. So, Roland decides to investigate further. He speaks with the property owners and discover that they live nearly 2,000 miles away where they moved after a job relocation. They love the income from the property, but because of the distance and the trouble they're having with their resident manager, they decided just to get rid of the property. Each of the 12 units rent for $1,000 per month, but the property is currently only half full and it's been that way for a long time. Roland knows this is because of the lack of good management. Roland knows this is a great deal, so he presents an offer to the sellers and they accept. The offer looks like this. One, Roland offers to do a master lease option on the property for the first three years with an option to buy it at 500,000. Roland and the couple, sellers, agree to a monthly amount of $3,000 
for the master rent payment. During the first year, Roland works hard to turn the property around. He manages the property locally, gets rid of the bad resident manager, increases occupancy, and even raises the average rent up to $1,200 per month per unit. The total gross income ends up at $14,400 per month. By the end of year one, after spending 50% in expenses, he's left with $7,200 to pay that $3,000 a month rent to the owners, leaving him with $4,200 every month in cash flow. And fourth, Roland saves half of the $4,200 in cash flow for years two and three, saving up over $50,000 just by managing effectively. At the end of year three, he approaches his local bank with a plan to purchase the property. The sellers agree to carry a 15% second mortgage for $75,000. He puts up the $50,000 that he's saved, and the bank gives a 75% LTV mortgage for $375,000. Perhaps best of all, the appraisal comes back at a value of just over a million dollars. In this example, Roland successfully purchased a 12-unit apartment complex, built over $500,000 in equity in three years, and created a substantial amount of cash flow income that comes in each and every month using nothing but his creative thinking and managing skills. Example three, a 203k loan to a cash out refinance to a partnership flip. Adam has never purchased any real estate before in his life. He works a busy day job as a law clerk in Denver, but has made plans to leave his job soon and become a full-time real estate investor. Adam finds a home that is in severe need of updating, located about 10 minutes from where he lives. It has two bedrooms and a bonus room, all painted bright green with some outdated carpet, bad lighting, and other cosmetic issues. The home is listed at $375,000, but he's able to get it under contract for just $325,000 because of how long it's been sitting on the market. Adam obtains a 203k FHA rehab loan, which allows him to include the $35,000 of rehab needed into the cost of the loan for just 3.5% down payment, which is just $12,600. That's 3.5% of the total loan amount. Because a 203k loan is only applicable for owner occupants, Adam and his family decide they'll move into the property and make it their first home. He navigates through the red tape and after several months, he has a fully remodeled home located in a great neighborhood that now has three bedrooms. He added a closet and a door to the bonus room to make it a legal bedroom. Because he is currently paying the mortgage and that expensive MIP, the mortgage insurance premium, Adam decides to refinance the home after a year into a, just a conventional loan. Thanks to the work he's done and the addition of the third bedroom, the home now appraises for $475,000. So Adam takes out an 80% loan-to-value loan, obtaining a new mortgage for $380,000, paying off the 203k loan completely and clearing an extra $20,000 from that refinance. Ironically, because Adam is no longer paying that private mortgage insurance, his monthly payment increases by less than $100 despite that much higher loan amount. Adam then takes his $38,000 and uses part of it to invest in a flip with a partner using a hard money loan to fund the purchase price of the flip, while Adam and his partner each put in $20,000 to fund the repairs. With this foray into flipping, Adam is able to leave his day job and jump full-time into real estate, and he did it all for just that initial $12,600 down payment on the original 203k loan. Wrapping up, where to go next? As you can see from these examples, buying real estate with little to no money down is possible, 
but it's not always easy. It takes creativity and a combination of tactics and strategies to make a successful no or low money down deal come together. Always remember that real estate is not black and white. It's a colorful tapestry made up of the experiences of millions of investors. The rules change daily and new strategies are always emerging. No book, not even this one, could ever hope to compare to real life conversation. Each of the techniques found in this book, along with many more, can be found in everyday conversations with the investors who live and breathe this stuff. If at any point while reading this book, you felt confused or overwhelmed, that's okay. These are not always easy concepts to fully understand, and there is a reason not everyone pursues creative real estate investing. There's nothing wrong with investing in real estate the slow, conservative method. In fact, I encourage it. However, for many people, waiting 5, 10, or 20 years to start investing is simply not an option. As I mentioned at the beginning of the book, real estate offers you the ability to trade cash for creativity like no other wealth-building opportunity. So don't be afraid to try out new creative strategies. In your creative real estate journey, you will run into walls, doors, and dead ends. You will encounter problems, questions, and irritations. You'll face uphill battles, downhill coasting, and desert wanderings. It's all part of the creative real estate investor's life. However, the way you respond to problems is what will define your future. Will you give up, shut down, and go back to what you're comfortable with? Or will you seek answers and press on? Final thoughts. I'm so honored that you've stuck around all the way to the end, and I hope now you have a solid understanding of at least nine different methods an investor could use to invest in real estate without a lot of cash. I hope also that you finish this book with a larger toolbox than when you started, and that you can use that toolbox to build your future. Remember, the larger your toolbox, the more tools you can fit inside, and the greater your chance of being able to build something incredible with your future. You have the tools, you have the toolbox, now go build something amazing. This has been the book on investing in real estate with no and low money down. Written and narrated by Brennan Turner. Copyright 2019 to Bigger Pockets. Production copyright 2019 to Bigger Pockets Publishing. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.